welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave, I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. Today joining us we have Ervin Varaya. Evan was trained in India in 1991, came across the UK about eight years later, where he worked in clinical pharmacology and clinical toxicology, and did a little bit of general medicine on the side. He led the toxicology clinical governance team at the Royal in Edinburgh for five years, and has got an interest in drug-related agitation, in poisons, and in healthcare improvement across a, a wide range of backgrounds. Evan, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here. So it's always a little bit of a heart sink moment when you get calls to a, you know, an undifferentiated collapsed patient and somebody, a helpful bystander, says, oh, I think they've taken something. How are we best to approach this kind of patient? So, yeah, these are always really difficult. And uh, sometimes I think it's the easier job that I've got when I've got advice on these patients later on. My thoughts about a way to approach these patients is to consider what aspects of their illness put them at the highest risk. And I think, I'm, I'm sure Dave, you and your colleagues would be going through that straight away. The thing about poisoning is that some of the effects that we see with the poisons are not things that are commonly seen in other settings. And perhaps people have difficulties because of applying knowledge from elsewhere into this, which I'm sure they, uh, all of us try and uh, avoid and we try and be very specific. But the thing with poisoning is the wide array of drugs that are uh, used, particularly with uh, drugs of abuse, patients have taken many different things. And when they are ill, it's quite difficult to say particularly which one made them ill. So the approach that I would take with these patients or the, that I would recommend is one that most people use, which is a, a toxidrome-based approach. And within that, all our colleagues across Scotland who deal with these patients, when they call us, it's very clear. They look initially at, of course, the ABCDE, but within that, they then look for, is this a sedative toxidrome? Is this a stimulant um, that the person is unwell with? These are perhaps not the terms that they would use, but people would be looking for, is it possible this person has injected themselves with heroin? Uh, are their pupils small? Uh, i.e., Do we have to worry about a risk of respiratory arrest now? Or they may look at the patient who is unwell and cold and wonder about a very low blood pressure. Is this because of a cardiotoxic medicine that's caused their blood pressure to be low? So the commonest worries that we have with patients who are acutely ill at the scene when ambulance crews see the patients are, of course, respiratory depression along with coma. We are called about and deal with patients who are severely agitated and sometimes can be violent or hyperthermic. Raised temperature goes quite often with the syndromes that cause severe agitation. Patients who have very low blood pressure because of any one of the cardiotoxic medicines that they've taken. Patients who've had fits partly because of their risk to their respiratory system and partly because fits are often caused by drugs that also put them at risk of cardiac toxicity. 
And the biggest worry for me are the patients who have presented perhaps with drowsiness or coma and their ECG shows abnormalities, very long QRS complexes, and where sometimes I think we get calls about patients who have not been treated for that with sodium bicarbonate, which is one of the big differences I find between our advice and what happens on the scene. So my approach would be to look for those major worries, the airway problems, the blood pressure, the ECG abnormalities that we need to worry about, raised temperature and the complications that it may bring and of course, agitation, which needs to be managed as quickly as possible. Brilliant. I'm going to come back and chat about agitation in a bit more detail in in a minute or two. But in terms of drug deaths from poisoning in Scotland, do you see a sort of a particular pattern? Is there a large amount more stimulant causing mortality or is it predominantly opiate related drugs? So my work puts me much more in contact with information about people who present to hospital or are well enough with their poisoning to come to the attention of healthcare staff before they die. And I say this because the information that I give is usually in relation to people who have at least not died immediately. I'm rarely called about people who die at home with an opiate overdose, for example, but opiates are still the commonest cause of death in relation to drugs of abuse. We do see quite a few of these patients now, uh, particularly with the National Naloxone Program. Uh, More people are surviving this, and we hear some fantastic stories about people who have been trained, who've been able to save uh, somebody else's life with it. We are seeing a lot of other people presenting with benzodiazepine poisoning. This is one of the big changes we've seen over the last five to eight years. There's been a significant increase in benzodiazepine toxicity. We are also seeing patients with a lot of agitation in relation to stimulant or serotonergic drugs. So for the opiate groups of drugs, am I right in saying that you know, we're sort of we're reaching for our Narcan, which most folk will be fairly familiar with. And I certainly try not to give it until I'm reasonably happy that I've got enough bodies around to, to look after me when when this chap wakes up. What can we do about the benzo overdoses in the community? Because I have a, a big sort of a warning flag over it in my head. So for both of them, I would add the first warning, and that is uh, that the use of the antidote has to be for airway protection. In hospital, and sometimes when we are called within the National Poisons Information Service, there are patients for whom it's not entirely clear why the antidote was given. The initial responder has sometimes not recorded the evidence of airway obstruction or ventilatory problems. All we can see is GCS was low, for example. And that's the first thing I would say that's true about benzodiazepine poisoning as well. Certainly, flumazenil should not be used simply to wake a patient up. It should only be used to reverse benzodiazepine effects enough 
to allow appropriate ventilation and it should really only be used as an alternative to intubation and ventilation. So that's the only condition in which flumazenil should be used for non-iatrogenic poisoning. It's a totally different matter if somebody's given a very big dose in a patient and this is in hospital and they give flumazenil. In the poisoning setting that we generally come across it, it should only be used to avoid ventilation. Flumazenil has raised a lot of concerns since many years ago. There was a case series of convulsions that was reported in association with flumazenil use. And it continues to remain a significant worry even now. Flumazenil is not without risk. However, there are also many instances and there are studies where people have given flumazenil safely to patients. The important thing is that we have changed the doses in which flumazenil is used. A long time ago, when uh, I was a trainee in India, we had this coma cocktail, a combination of three drugs that included flumazenil, which would be given in people with undifferentiated coma, checking whether it might be because of drugs. Now, clearly, that is a dangerous practice that nobody does anymore, at least I hope so. The dose of flumazenil was 10 milligrams at that time, as opposed to the 0.5 milligram dose that we recommend now as the first bolus in a patient where, in whom we are using it to avoid ventilation. So there's a massive difference in dose. There's a massive difference in indication. Toxbase um, is where I would go for the more definitive advice. And we are very clear in the National Poisons Information Service that flumazenil is something to be only used for avoidance of intubation and ventilation. It should not be used where there is a possibility that a person has taken a proconvulsant drug. Now, that is still a very cautious position to take. There are studies that have shown that people who have been given flumazenil and have recovered well with it, as long as it's used in small doses, even patients who had blood concentrations of proconvulsant drugs or history of taking proconvulsant drugs, only a minority came to harm. However, I think we have to be very cautious with all these things. And if there's a doubt, people can call. Um, so avoid it in the presence of proconvulsant drugs. Avoid it in patients who have prolonged QRS, which associates with sodium channel blockers and the risk of convulsions as well. So out with those, I think it's a drug that can be safely used at small doses and if the indication is only for preventing ventilation. So that's our sort of our airways and breathing type patients covered off. What about the patients who are cardiovascularly unstable? How, how do you approach them from a poison's point of view? So let me just go to the hypertensive point of patient in the first instance, because that's something we are occasionally called about. My advice in almost all instances for those is with a stimulant use, a hypertensive patient, most times it settles down spontaneously. And if they're agitated, benzodiazepines are the treatment I would give. I said this first because I think most times we should not be doing anything else. Patients with hypertension in relation to drug use quite often are also at risk of suddenly dropping their blood pressure, having other cardiovascular risk. So other than that, when I look at cardiovascular risk, there are two major ways in which I look at it. One is the, the electricity in the heart 
the kind of abnormalities that we might see on an ECG that predicts the risk of severe harm. So most people would recognize QTC or QT prolongation as a risk for tossad. And when I see students in the wards in the hospital, if I ask them to look at an ECG and tell me the risks that they would worry about to the poisoning patient, it's QT or QTC that first comes um, to their mind. And that's because for most drugs, we monitor QT. For the poison patient, in the bigger risk actually is QRS. The likelihood that a prolonged QRS will result in serious harm to a patient is actually much higher and depending on the QRS. So if the QRS is over 160, um, there is a very high risk that a patient may develop cardiac arrest from VT, cardiogenic shock or convulsions. Um, and therefore that's the first worry that I would have. And I think this is not something most people appreciate, perhaps because we don't see QRS becoming prolonged in any other conditions except a myocardial infarction. And in relation to medicines, I suppose drugs that can cause QRS prolongation in normal doses are possibly not things that we use, possibly because they are very risky. So QRS prolongation in an ECG is the first worry I would have from a, an ECG perspective. We have, of course, the patients who have bradycardia, so can go into severe dysrhythmias, the, uh, either that is because of a beta blocker, calcium channel blocker, where there's a whole sinus bradycardia that can become very severe. Or you can have drugs like digoxin that can lead to complete heart block, as well as uh, bradyarrhythmia related to that. And the treatment of bradyarrhythmias, other than when you have to use an antidote for digoxin, are probably very similar to what you would do in most other settings. And the only other thing then is QT, QT prolongation, um, and to some extent, the management of QT prolongation as well as the same, you would still give uh, magnesium, potassium, etc. It's a QRS that people quite often don't recognize the risk and perhaps treat early enough with bicarbonate. The other bit of cardiovascular risk and the one that uh, is often a really difficult challenge to treat and can result in hours of treatment is hypotension, particularly in relation to beta blocker or calcium channel blocker poisoning. And in that, we tend to, when we are called, look for certain parameters. So for example, if a patient presents with hypotension and has a high blood sugar and they're not diabetic, I would worry about a calcium channel blocker poisoning. We know that in calcium channel blocker poisoning, hyperglycemia, raised lactate are factors that indicate higher risk. And I would consider those patients for high dose insulin as well. So it's that thing. Is it a beta blocker? Is it a calcium channel blocker? In which case, there are lots of different treatments that we can try. And a lot of other drugs that are associated with hypotension, perhaps we treat in the same way as any other patient with hypotension, uh, IV fluids, perhaps a normal inotropes. There are specific treatments for some of these drugs for hypotension that are not used in any other setting in medicine. 
So uh, glucagon used for raising the blood pressure or insulin at a dose of a bolus of one unit per kilogram. These are things that are different about the toxicology patient with hypotension. Even just having that blood sugar differential actually gives quite a nice you know, roadside, bedside test that, that can help you unpick what, what you're dealing with. That's really useful. So we've, we've looked at the hypertensive patient and the hypotensive patient and potentially the dysrhythmic patient. Is there anything else from a circulation point of view that would get your concerns? I, I mean, circulation is a really big field in terms of what else we look at. Is there a particular thing, Dave, that you come across? From my perspective, those are the commonest big worries, the things that I want to get right straight away. Can we just talk briefly about torsade? I've not seen much of it, but I've had a patient pre-hospitally who presented in torsade. How would you approach the management of torsade point? So if a person already has torsade, my, I think the treatment would be the same as in a non-toxicological setting. We would give the patient magnesium straight away. And once treated, what we are recommending is that patients magnesium should be kept at the higher end of normal what i find quite often whether it's a, in a patient with tosad or with prolonged qt something that's missed even by the time the patient comes to the acute medicine ward and by the time of my morning ward round is people haven't replaced the potassium but of course all of us know that i think it's it's one of those things we associate tosad with magnesium but some uh, more inexperienced trainees uh, forget to to replace the potassium and keep that high normal in very severe cases and i think the vast majority of cases tosad settles down with magnesium alone i can't recall a case in which i've ever had to recommend anything else but you can overdrive pace a patient um, who's got tosad as you know as heart rate increases the risk of tosad reduces patients can come back into normal rhythm if you can pace them at a higher rate as well so of course by the time the patient comes in with a tosad we are going to shock them out of it as well if they are compromised which is what would be the commonest setting but magnesium the usual shock treatment if if we have to give that and check and replace potassium it's interesting i've fairly recently started carrying magnesium pre-hospitally and i think it's a, a drug that seems to have more and more in the way of indications Yes, that's true. There are so many indications uh, that are available. Interestingly, I did an audit of patients who presented with cardiotoxic drugs in the Royal Infirmary. In fact, I say I, but very good registrar, Jane McRae, did it at that time. And we looked at patients who had received bicarbonate and magnesium. Magnesium, in theory anyway, although it reduces the risk of tosad, it doesn't reduce the QT interval. That's the wisdom that we are generally taught. In our cohort of patients, interestingly, both QT and QRS reduced in the patients who got sodium bicarbonate. And it's difficult to know whether or not that related to their risk of tosad. But yeah, it's another thing that perhaps, uh, uh, although we give magnesium for it, I don't know whether bicarbonate might have been just as effective in some of these patients. Okay, so sort of moving through the, the A to E algorithm, that, that gets us to disability. And I guess top of most people's list here is going to be agitation. 
these patients are an absolute nightmare at the roadside. <laughs> what would you suggest in terms of, of the basics of their management? So yes, these patients are, I've seen them in the roadside. I once visited a local prison and saw some patients brought in one patient brought in with a stimulant uh, toxicity as well and in hospital and in fact it is as you would know a terrible thing with some of the severely agitated patients i have seen instances of violence to the patients and to staff my approach to managing this is overall the most effective drugs in toxicological agitation are the benzodiazepines and I would use them liberally and when I say liberally I would give in a patient who came in if they have access intravenous access I would give them 20 milligrams diazepam to begin with as an intravenous dose if they are severely agitated in patients who are able to take benzodiazepines orally again it would be diazepam 20 milligrams orally if they will take it and i choose diazepam because we know that these patients are not just agitated now they will remain agitated or there will be a drive to keep them agitated for several hours from the time when they've taken one of these drugs and what's really helpful is to have a drug that has a prolonged effect or has a tissue reservoir in the uh, patient's own body fat so that there's a prolonged plasma half-life as well. So as the stimulant concentration comes down slowly, the sedative concentration also comes down slowly. Benzodiazepines, amongst the different benzodiazepines, I prefer diazepam also because the highly lipid-soluble diazepam equilibrates very rapidly between plasma and brain. So the CSF plasma equilibration occurs within minutes for diazepam. That's not the case for midazolam. So if you've given midazolam and knocked your patient out, it's probable that in 30 minutes more, this patient will have more benzodiazepine effects than when you finish with your injection. So first off, benzodiazepines whatever you can get into the patient preferably for me it would be diazepam or lorazepam lorazepam can also be given im so those would be my preferred choices but whatever people are comfortable with and in fact if benzodiazepines are not the preferred choice i think of managing these patients as having two phases the first is control and as rapid control as possible and if that requires ketamine or propofol as the drugs that you are most familiar with then go for it i would say what needs to be done is to have a very quick control of patients with severe agitation once that agitation the severe agitation is controlled then i think of something to maintain that sedation and in that situation it would always be a long-acting benzodiazepine that'll be my first choice and it's worth thinking of that every time so once a person's controlled to then think about when they need to have that next dose of benzodiazepine and if control initially was attained with a short-acting drug then I would always add a long-acting benzodiazepine as the next choice. What I tend to do with these patients is that if they have features of serotonin toxicity, so that's another thing that I would add when, when and if possible, it's not always possible, if a patient is agitated 
check whether they feel hot, their temperature is up. So if their temperature is high, they may have serotonin toxicity anyway. That alone may be indicative of serotonin toxicity. And check whether they've got ankle clonus. That's an early feature of serotonin toxicity. And this helps me because what I tend to do with patients who have severe agitation and particularly if they have thought disorders, they seem to be delusional, is to use a serotonin antagonist drug. Chlorpromazine is a really helpful drug in that uh, scenario where it's antipsychotic, sedating, serotonin antagonist properties actually help not just calm the patient, but reduce the risk of the harm from hyperthermia, etc. The only worry with chlorpromazine, if you're going to use this in these patients, is to make sure that their blood pressure is okay because it can cause uh, blood pressure to drop. So those are the two main things, benzodiazepines, serotonin antagonists. But in the first instance, the control phase, use whatever you can do quickly because the longer the patient is agitated, the more the risk to them. So I think it's only been a fairly recent development within the Scottish Ambulance Service that midazolam is carried routinely by crews. I don't know, they have quite tight guidelines around the giving of midazolam. Now for basic responders, there might be some more flexibility in there. But other than GPs, I think most folk are sort of are stuck with midazolam. Do you have a, a rough sort of dose in your mind for IV or IM midaz? So I would go for 10 milligrams IM midaz. IV, it's so much more a difficult thing depending on the size of the patient. But I, I would still say for a patient with a drug-induced agitation, I don't think a 10 milligram dose is a bad idea. The only worry for me with midazolam is, of course, the risk of respiratory impairment. So perhaps a 10 milligram dose, but with careful monitoring thereafter. And what about haloperidol? We see it sort of more obviously in psychiatric agitation, but is there a role for it in pharmacological? Oh, definitely. So I use haloperidol as a drug to complement the effects of the benzodiazepines. And in patients who are agitated, my first line would be benzodiazepines and I'd give additional doses as well. So in a patient who I see in the acute medical unit, for example, and we do see a significant number of patients who get severely agitated, I'd give 40 milligrams of diazepam and then on top of it i may add on haloperidol or chlorpromazine depending upon what the situation is so we face this particularly when we had this real spike in the use of this thing called ivory wave and we saw lots and lots of severely agitated patients turning up in prisons of course ambulance service in the mental health hospital as well as acute hospital and yes those patients really needed both a benzodiazepine for sedation and an antipsychotic and i would tend to use an antipsychotic as something that's complementary in all patients who have severe thought disorder, whether that's delusions or hallucinations, if it doesn't settle with the initial benzodiazepines. But some, sometimes, even when you've given a good amount of benzodiazepines, uh, other people would use haloperidol as a sedating agent alone. My practice, if it's a drug-induced agitation, if they don't have serotonergic features or psychotic features, I just give more benzodiazepines. Excellent. I, I do enjoy the, the simple approach to things. You mentioned ivory wave there. In terms of synthetic street drugs, there's, there's clearly a kind of constant evolution. And um, what are you seeing at the moment? 
Actually, what we are seeing at the moment is people are going back to the older, more well-recognized drugs. So we are seeing a lot of people use, in terms of the stimulants anyway, we're seeing patients who are coming in having used cocaine and MDMA more often than all the other drugs that we used to see in between. I think the legislative changes that have been brought in to reduce the use of the novel psychoactive substances have been effective. We've certainly in the local poison squad seen a substantial difference. We've in Edinburgh, my colleagues have been running this study called Iona, in which they've been looking at substances that patients have taken when they've come in with a recreational drug or a novel psychoactive substance toxicity. And the kind of drugs we see um, nowadays, primarily, we get cathinones, we get uh, cocaine, we get MDMA. And very rarely do we get the complicated cathinones now. So we've possibly seen the sort of the tail end of the the spice and all the myriad uh, variants of it. So spice we do get, but yes, we get them, but the numbers have come down. I think the cannabinoid receptor agonists, we still see some of them, but at least in the admissions ward, when patients have been tested, they are not as big a problem as they were in the past. Brilliant. So we've talked about A, B, C and D. I guess the last little bits to tidy up would be to talk about temperature and about blood sugar. You mentioned before dealing with serotonin syndrome and, and that pyrexic type patient. Um, is there anything we can do roadside to cool them down? It's really difficult, isn't it, to, to do a lot on the roadside. Now, I'm no expert on it. There are cases, there are situations where patients have been transferred from across long distances, and sometimes they've then had the treatments that I typically see in hospital, cold IV fluids, ice in the axillae and groin, etc., uh, attempted outside the hospital. To me, the most important thing in patients who have fever is to get them into hospital as soon as possible and get them lots of benzodiazepines. I think that's the most helpful early thing. One issue that I've come across, uh, and actually as an expert witness the first time around, is uh, in some parts of the UK, and I think it's a rarer thing in Scotland, patients who are, or people who are behaving oddly and have taken a stimulant might come to the attention of the police in the first instance rather than healthcare staff. And there are instances where then the police have managed the patient and not involved ambulance. And that's in some of these cases, the patient, the people have been, the subject as they call them, has been both agitated and had a raised temperature. And I would say the most useful thing that these people can have done to them is to call an ambulance and actually look to deliver treatments with benzodiazepines and early control of agitation in the same way as we discussed before. Control as quickly as possible and bring them to hospital. Presumably sugar control is just aiming for a normal BM at the roadside. Yes. So sugar control in toxicology, so there are two separate problems that you might find. Of course, the patient may be hypoglycemic and that 
typically would be when people have taken either insulin or other uh, glucose-lowering drugs. And yes, these are quite effectively treated at the roadside with glucose um, to bring the blood sugar up. And then the patient is rushed to hospital. And sometimes we then have to think about other treatments, whether it's uh, glucagon or octreotide or very rarely anything else. In those patients who are hyperglycemic, I think the real worry, so in a patient who has become hyperglycemic in the context of a calcium channel blocker poisoning, I would say the blood sugar itself doesn't need immediate management. What the patient needs is high-dose insulin to bring the blood pressure up. And so, yeah, if it's high, it's not normal glycemia that we're aiming for. It's just it tells us that these patients will need high doses of insulin to keep their blood pressure up. So they need to be urgently transferred to hospital. And we, we touched very briefly on spice and the sort of cannabinoids. In terms of the psychological presentations of these drugs, are there any particular toxidromes to look out for or do you just sort of lump them together as patients who are agitated but perhaps not cardiovascularly unstable? Yeah, so that's what I tend to do, Dave. I think one of the reasons for simplifying it is that I've in past years uh, found that when we go into multiple different toxidromes or we try and fit every chemical structure with particular effects. The risk of that is that firstly, it's difficult to know what will happen to an individual because they think they've taken one thing and actually they've taken something else. So they've taken a mixture and the effects vary. But more importantly, I found that healthcare staff sometimes feel that they are unsure, they feel out of control, because sometimes patients come and tell them, well, I've taken an empathogen and it does blah, blah, blah. I tend to narrow everything into a single entity. When the patient is agitated, to me, overall, I just treat them as a stimulant stroke serotonergic toxidrome, even if it was because of a cannabinoid, biggest worry for me there would be the hyperthermia and management of acute agitation. The psychological presentations of it, there are some very strange ones. And nowadays we also see patients who come in occasionally with ketamine toxicity with more psychological features. But my primary focus in terms of managing it would be is this stimulant toxicity? Is there a possibility of a serotonin toxicity for which we can add additional treatments? And that's it. One of the things we've been getting all of our presenters to do is to give basic responders three kind of top tips for dealing with poisons and patients with toxic presentations. What would your suggestions be? So my top tips, first of all, would be I think to use bicarbonate more if you have access to it. Dave, I'm not sure whether sodium bicarbonate is something that ambulance staff have access to in the same way as in hospital. I would say bicarbonate in patients who have QRS prolongation is life-saving. And I would say it's something that should be used far more often in the propranol all overdose patient, for example, or patients who've taken amitriptyline. So a whole range of sodium channel blocking drug poisoning. The second thing I would say is to reiterate that point that antidotes for the sedatives, be it naloxone, which 
would be the far more commonly and quite rightly used antidote or flumazenil in a much more select group uh, should only be used for protection of the airway or improving ventilation and it would be really helpful to have a clear record of that being the case beforehand before an antidote was used and then if an antidote was used then to give enough of a dose so sometimes there are patients who've had 800 micrograms of naloxone and then the people treating them have stopped at that point but actually if it was worth giving 800 then give it until you use three milligrams in a person who's severely poisoned because that may be adequate to protect them from aspiration and they may not need ventilation the third thing i would say is the National Poisons Information Service is always happy to take calls. I'm not sure how well Talkspace is used. I would recommend using Talkspace if you can at the scene. But if there's any question at all, call us. We're always happy to take calls and can keep it as short as you wish if there are any doubts about the more complex cases. That's fantastic. Thanks very much. I know it's it, it's a very difficult balance because a lot of the management is so hospital focused but actually a lot of what you said there is is very achievable at the roadside and even things like bicarbonate that are not routinely available on ambulances a lot of rural practices will have access to it and and certainly out on the islands there is scope to give these drugs so i think it's very useful given how widespread the poisoning problems are within scotland Absolutely. One of the things that was mentioned to me at a meeting of the retrieval service was apparently there is a poisons box with some of the retrieval services. And there was talk about assessing and whether it has the right things and considering whether there could be other drugs that could be added and perhaps advice that could be added, particularly for the tox patient. And in that case, it would be fantastic to have perhaps a bedside or a roadside tool that helps people go through the most important things to manage these patients. I think there will be a, a lot of ambulance crews that will be uh, very comforted to have something like that in the back pocket. And even just a kind of a walkthrough, talk through, much like you've given us today. Because ultimately, you know, what you've described today is is an A to B assessment and a treatment of the things that you find, which is it's the same approach as we take for everything. But I think we worry with poisons and with overdose that, that we need to do something different. Yep. That's true. The challenge really is that sometimes people are worried about perhaps doing other stuff when absolutely the usual routine care, good airway control, and the use of antidotes that people are quite familiar with is all that's needed. But because of the different names and the bewildering array of things that people take, there is a lack of confidence, let's say. The other times, I think there are treatments that we use, bicarbonate, for example, high-dose insulin, um, that are not commonly used in any other setting. And I think having things to remind staff, particularly inexperienced staff at the roadside of how to use it, I think will make it all much easier to manage some of these problems. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for giving us a, a really clear walkthrough there. And uh, hopefully if these things come out in the future, we can we can get you back on to talk, you th talk us through them. That will be my pleasure. Thank you, Dave. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.